I had a mentor, Joseph Brady, and he had a wonderful saying, which was, tell them what you're going to do, tell them how you're going to do it, tell them why you're going to do it, and then tell them again what you're going to do. See? <laughs> because that's really what it comes down to. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast, friends. On today's episode, you're going to hear from Dr. Elise Weertz. Elise is a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences here at Hopkins. And I'm going to tell you how I met her and why I'm so excited and been kind of like harassing her and following her around Hopkins for a couple of years. And I'm going to let her go for it. At Hopkins, we started something called speed reviews, study sections or specific aims review sessions and K clubs for K, K grant clubs and R clubs and all these grant writing groups. And I met Elise and I told her how, for example, the specific games speed sessions we do where we just simply revise specific games pages. She told me about her uh, initiative that she'd been doing for almost 10 years now with small cohorts in psychiatry where she said, well, that's interesting. That sounds good. But I kind of go back even further than that. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, I start with, are you even writing the right grant? So before looking at specific aims, as a person, the investigator actually starting correctly. So that was one I got so excited about, at least. And I'm going to stop there because hopefully the listeners are equally intrigued. And I promise you, you're going to learn a lot. Elise, welcome to the Faculty Factory podcast. I, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. I, I, I'm excited to tell you about uh, my experiences. Okay, great. So tell people a little bit of your background and your whole immersion into grant writing. And reviews. So, okay. So I've I've uh, I've been here at Hopkins for over 25 years. I started as a postdoc and was writing my grants as a new faculty member when I started. And uh, you know, I found it very baffling as to how to even do the whole process. And eventually, I got better by trial and error, which I think people will find. And then later on in life, I began reviewing grants for the NIH for um, both. NIDA, which is the National Institute of Drug Abuse, and then NIAAA, which is um, the National Institute for Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, and then later on for just CSR, the um, main uh, review board. And that process in different study sections had me reading a lot of grants and sort of understanding what makes a good grant, what makes an argument compelling, and, and when uh, distractors come in. And as I uh, progressed through faculty, I was watching new faculty really struggle. And I was thinking back to the first time I was trying to write grants and, you know, some of my missteps and uh, watching in particular, um, you know, one young colleague submitting a grant over and over again that I kept thinking when I was watching, you know, it's just not the right grant for you. Mm. And so... Um, I started a small program with um, just my colleagues to go backwards and further with grant brainstorming, as I called it, to make sure that people had really thought out their ideas before ever putting the um, you know pen to paper when writing a specific game, so that they could write the right grant. So, so tell me after you you know that that thought came to you. How did you come up with this this program that you put together that you built where you lead? Uh, faculty through this almost, I think it's a year-long cohort you talked about, how starting with them bringing the CV to the table. How yeah, so it, I, I've, I've led different types of groups, but for the, for the first time um, new grant writer, we, we start with 
just having people come in and I have them bring either their, you know, biosketch that they're currently using for NIH that, that where they've been unsuccessful or their CV. The CV is probably the best because it has the full story. And I have them sit down and, and just start looking at their own CV. Um, and I, I do a, a silly thing where I just take a highlighter and I start highlighting words that I see on their CV that are repetitive. And what that does is it tells me their background and their expertise. Um, and then from looking at those highlighted words, I then look at, you know, what the things they're talking about with writing a grant and I see if they align. Yeah. Love it. Okay. So this is beautiful. I'm so excited. Um, for you to share your tidbits, what what is your advice or what kind of things do you want to share with us today about writing the right grant? What kind of faculty member listening to this right now pick up on the fly or think about to help them do just that, write the right grant? Yeah, so I think I think all of us have an idea of where we want to go and, and we have great ideas for future grants. And the idea is to write the first R01, which is the most logical one, the one that builds on your prior work. Because once you have the first grant in place, it's a lot easier and you're, you're more polished in getting the second grant. And if you have a progression of where you want to go, you know, don't try and go with a giant leap. Maybe you've got to do some building blocks first and that, that's your first grant. Um, I think most important, you've got to really think about what you're going to write. So what are the goals and questions you want to answer? And, do these questions align with the NIH priorities? So are you writing on a topic that is fundable? You know, is it, is it something that NIH is interested in? Is it have a good public health impact? You know, that there's one thing I say over and over, which is talk to program. They want to help you. So if you, if you can identify a program officer in your area or just stop by the booth when they're at scientific meetings and talk to them, they will tell you a lot of information about how to successfully find the right alignment of funding agency for your idea. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you just aren't spending it at the right place. I think you gotta, you gotta know your, your field and, and do a lot of research before you write the grant. Make sure you've got all the background literature aligned and, and that you are not trying to essentially redo a study that's already been done. Right. That's, that's a common error. Um, and most of all, I think try and read other people's grants. So if you have a mentor who's a you know successful grant writer, uh, ask if they're willing to share their grants so you can see the structure of it and see what works well and what doesn't. I honestly think by reviewing grants, I became a better grant writer myself. So I, I like I like even back in that train up your your whole idea about the CV. So I'm hearing at least three concrete uh, tips is. Maybe if you yourself, or you know, I myself, I'm a little bit, um, you know, blinded by my own CV. Literally, give your CV to a friend, a colleague, a mentor, and ask them to do just kind of what you suggested with a highlighter, almost like a content analysis or thematic, you know, discovery. You know, what words are jumping out at you that maybe you know we ourselves don't recognize that you're right i do use a lot of you know evaluation in there so maybe i am interested in program evaluation or implementation I never really thought about it that way so i like that kind of you know new new lens new framework new way or new eyes on something to give me some feedback and then you talked about make sure the first grant and you gave the example of the r1 is the logical one 
And I guess a little bit of me kind of went, well, that's kind of sometimes where I think our faculty struggle. And that was with me too. I had so many failed grant uh, applications. I wasn't sure, well, how do I know it's a logical one? I'm, I don't think I'm generally an illogical person. So it made sense to me. But again, that's in my narrow perspective. You know, I guess I didn't, I was not fully aware, as you've suggested, of aligning with priorities. What's also been already been funded? How is this clearly a building block to subsequent then applications that will answer some other big aha question? Exactly. Can you talk more about that, that logic? Yeah, I think you're you're not alone. So just I want to share with you that we had surveyed a bunch of the people attending the K to R program about their difficulties in writing grants, and actually having what was the best idea for the first grant. Eighty percent of people said that they really didn't know. See, and what is what do they need the most help with? And that was refining their ideas. So if they had ideas to write a grant, they needed help in refining them. So that's the idea of backing up the train and just really thinking about what you're going to write. Yeah. And so you want to you want to think about the fact that what population are you studying and and is it the right population to study? What are what are the um, questions you're going to answer? And and if you're you know focusing on a specific question, the population should start to come out at you um, as to how to get there. And if you don't have do you have data? If you don't have any data yet, then maybe an R01 is not the right grant to write. Maybe you need to write an R21 to get pilot data. Or an RO3, a small, you know, grant. Um, the other thing is to read all the program announcements because a lot of times people, um, can learn about what NIH is interested in from reading the program announcement because they tell you what they're interested in. Um, and I don't think people read them that much. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's so overwhelming and, and intimidating a process. And as a scientist, that's our job is to collect data. So part of the literature review is not only uh, what is being done in this space about this specific research hypothesis. It's also all that other administrative documenting policy of this, of the specific, you know, institute, all those things you're talking about. And, and to me, it's the little bit, the relief is, or some of the relief to me comes from your telling us and my reminding myself, it's not all on you. So you don't have to figure this all out by yourself. Yes, it's no, incumbent you upon you to do this. You have to do due diligence. But there are people out there who have done good grants and they've executed them and they've finished them and they have multiple grants and they are scientific officers and review officers. And, and there are people out there who, even if they're not in your field, can give you feedback and help you and question and ask you questions that would make you think, well, Why'd you ask that question? And then it might make you go, oh, geez, if, if she's asking that question, maybe somebody on the study section would also ask a question. So poking holes and looking at opportunities. And I, I can't help but think some people say, well, it must be nice at Hopkins because you clearly have all these great programs and you've got great Dr. Elise Weirts out there and you've got all these, you know, speed sec. We don't have that at our institution. Well, that may be the case. It still doesn't mean you can't go and put that CV in front of somebody's face or ask somebody to read their, their grant application or ask somebody, can I have a brainstorming, a grant brainstorming meeting with you? Can I buy you a cup of coffee and can we just talk? So that's, that's, that's a really good point. It reminds me of a, of a, a key thing that, so when I started that group, it was a peer group. I was doing it initially with other researchers who were at the same level or lower. And, um, the idea that your associates at the same level can give you feedback, even if they're struggling, just having someone else read your work 
and someone else to bounce ideas off is really important. And you'll be amazed at how much um, feedback and information that is useful you'll get out of the experience. So in the, in the group that I teach now, everyone attends and everyone comments on everyone else's ideas, and it develops a better, more refined research goal and a better application in the long run because they're getting so much feedback. So yeah. I think, you know, the optimal of the group size is like six to eight because then you've got enough people in the group to give you feedback and an array of different things and, and enough um, density to yeah. make it you know, chug forward. But um, you can do it with your friends. It doesn't right. have to be a senior level person in the field giving you feedback. It can be your, your cohort of allies in research. And I can't, I love it, and I can't emphasize enough, and I know a lot of people don't believe me when I say this, but when I came to Hopkins and started the CRIGS, Clinical Research Investigator Groups, and the BRIGS, the Basic Research Investigator Groups, and the K Clubs, those are writing Ks, I, you know, tried building those peer networks as well, and there was a lot of intimidation of like, well, no, I can't possibly go to that. I'm not a basic scientist. Or, no, I'm not a cardiologist. I don't know anything about that. Or, why would I give you my grant? You know, you're not, you know, you don't look at neutrophils. And, and once people got into the rhythm of seeing, well, yeah, maybe we don't. I, I didn't know and, and half the basic scientist applications I look at. I didn't understand what, you know, 80% of the words were, these multi-syllable words, and I literally had no clue. I'm a social scientist. And yet, once I'd simply say, or just tell me what that means, I'd read through it. My native language is English. So just by virtue of reading it and saying, I'm not sure what are you trying to do here, and oftentimes the whole, the, the process would end up turning the specific games page over, upside down. We don't want to look at it. You, human being, investigator, talk to the group here. Tell us what it is you're aiming to do and why. And once that piece of paper is turned over and the investigator starts telling her or his story, that's when people are like, oh, you're going to do that. Well, say that, write that. I didn't understand that. And then the light bulbs are bling, 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 because you're talking and communicating in common, plain language. So I just really want to emphasize that it doesn't even need to be a homogeneous group of people who get your science. People are, at this level, they are rational beings. They understand, and they would say, wait a minute, I don't get that. And so the whole process, I think, is so informative, right? Exactly. And I, I think that you hit the nail on the head with the idea of, of talking about it. So that's one of the things that we do in our group is everyone sits down and explains what they're going to do before they present anything written to the group. So they'll tell us about the idea and then they'll eventually put it to paper and we'll all sit there with the paper and review it and be asking questions back and forth. And what comes out half the time is exactly what you said. Say that. <laughs> you know, here, what you're saying here in the group, because you're so much clearer when you're yeah. trying to explain it verbally than you are in your writing. I think people assume knowledge too often when they're when they're writing their aims page. That's right. We we try to over cerebralize, if that's the word. We 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 try to be so smart in our grants, or we think grant writing is the same as manuscript writing. And so, what we fail to realize is, though, in grants, it's got to be as simple as possible and by trying to be smart 
or appear smart, we're really kind of sometimes shooting ourselves in the foot because there are people, as you know, you know, way better than me, all the study sections you you go to, you know, three, four times a year for decades, you, people around that table don't necessarily know your science, but they can follow logic and order and they've seen enough of them to know that, oh, this is going to trip you up. So you better just be clear. Right. right. So I had a mentor, Joseph Brady, who uh, passed away a few years ago, and he had a wonderful saying, which was, tell them what you're going to do, tell them how you're going to do it, tell them why you're going to do it, and then tell them again what you're going to do. See? <laughs> because that's really what it comes down to. You don't tell a story where you tell why something's important, and then eventually at the end of the page, tell them what you're going to do, because by then they've lost interest. Right. You need to start right up front with telling them what you're going to do. I remember at, at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, where I worked before Hopkins, Paul Carvey was the dean of the College of, gosh, was it basic science? I can't remember what they call it there. But he'd always say, beat them about the head with the obvious. Beat them about the head with the obvious. I'm like, that's awfully aggressive. But actually, it's funny because he really liked uh, boxing. He had a pair of Muhammad Ali's boxing gloves, whatever it is. But now make, now that I'm talking about it, it makes sense that he was all about the beat them about the head with the obvious. And playing the grant forward, just don't be afraid of being redundant and repeat and repeat and repeat. It's probably, you know, what your mentor taught you. It's like you tell, yep. you know, we're going to sit down. I'm going to tell you a story. This is what's going to happen. We're going to do this. Do you see what we just did? We just did that. And what that means is you just kind of holding their hands and then walking them down this trail and narrating all the while so that there's never any big, you know, boogeyman monster who jumps out from the bushes and scares them. Like, where'd that come from? No, the whole time you said, right. we're going to go here and we're going to do that. And do you see where we went? We just went there. And now what's going to happen is we're going to go there. So that the person is always like, oh, I bet you I know what's going to happen next because you're just beating them about the head with the ob no surprises that they're you're totally online with you and in fact then they start racing ahead because they know they're so excited they know it's going to be next because you've primed the pump yep that's a really good point love it well what else any any wrap up that you would like to on the snippet elise i think you've given us some lots of important things to chew on sure i think uh when you're when you're trying to think about the right grant one of the things I do at the same time is get people to develop their biosketch um, that aligns with what their research is. And, and a lot of times people haven't done that before. And again, same thing, grouping your uh, accomplishments into a logical bunch of segments because you get five on the NIH biosketch for, for areas of research that you've contributed to the literature. And, you know, you can move those around in different ways to highlight key pieces. And, and starting to think about your biosketch will get you to also think about what you're writing in your grant because each biosketch is unique. So you, you, you really want to start thinking about that and how it aligns with your research. Important stuff. And this is, um, yeah, communication, meeting, talking out, thinking it out, uh, logical, looking for key words, kind of just taking a deep breath and figuring out alignment, strategy. It's, it's all stuff that um, if, if you don't feel the confidence to do it, there are people around you who have done it and they'd love to share, right? Just like you share all the time. So, Absolutely. Well, folks, we've been listening to uh, Dr. Elise Weirtz, the professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences here at Johns Hopkins. Elise, if folks want to get in touch with you, uh, would you like them to email me at the Faculty Factory, or do you want to share your email address? Would it, how's, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Um, either way. 
They can email me or you. All right. So, folks, you can email me at facultyfactorykim at gmail.com. That's one big running thing, facultyfactorykim at gmail.com, where you go on the, the facultyfactory.org website. Or you can contact Elise Weirts at eweirts. That's E-W-E-E-R-T-S at J-H-M-I dot E-D-U. That's E-Weirts, E-W-E-E-R-T-S at J-H-M-I, Johns Hopkins Medical Institute dot E-D-U. Thanks for joining us on Faculty Factory Podcast. Till next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.